All right, if you will open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I'll read verses 1 through 6, even though we'll cover only verses 1 to 3 tonight. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The Apostle Paul moves with the beginning of chapter 4 to a new section of his letter. He often does this in his epistles, going from what we might call an overt theological portion to an intensely practical one. He does that, for example, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. He uses actually the same Greek words that he uses here in chapter 4, verse 1, at least the first three words, therefore I appeal to you. Those same Greek words appear in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And what Paul is doing both there and here is that he is working his way systematically through what we might call a theology of each of those letters, Romans and Ephesians, and there are a couple of other examples in his writings as well. And as he weaves his way through the doctrines that he wants to uh, teach us, he will then say, usually, something like this, Therefore, I want you to do so and so, or therefore, I beseech you, or therefore, I appeal to you. For instance, in Romans chapter 12, uh, he says, Therefore, I appeal, you, appeal to you based on the mercies of God. And the mercies of God are explained in the previous 11 chapters. It's uh, an amazing thing to go back through those 11 chapters and find out all of the ways, both explicitly and implicitly, that Paul talks about those mercies of God. And then he appeals on the basis of the, those mercies to have them do something. And of course, there in chapter 12, verse 1, he talks about giving your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. And here in Ephesians chapter 4, he does the same thing. In the first three chapters, as we have systematically, verse by verse, worked our way through, he's talking in those first three chapters about a lot of doctrine. Now, it's not completely devoid of how we can apply it to our Christian lives, but it is, in the main, doctrinal. And then he comes in chapter 4, verse 1, and says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to do something. And so he makes this transition. And don't forget that Paul is still a Roman prisoner. And that's why he says he's a prisoner for the Lord. Which I suspect probably means that he may be a prisoner at Rome, but he's ultimately a prisoner for the Lord. 
He still has much work to do for Christ, even in the midst of his imprisonment. And one of the things that he wants to do is write a letter like this. So if you want to know what is the main verbal idea here in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, it is contained in that phrase in verse 1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So the main idea, the main command that has force to it uh, behind this verbal idea is walk. Walk. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Called to salvation. Predestined to salvation. And what Paul is saying there is that you've not only called, been called to salvation, you not only have been predestined for salvation, not only have you been elected by God's grace to salvation, but you've also been called, as he says here, to walk in a manner worthy of that salvation. So it's never true that any Christian could say, well, I was called by God to salvation, but after that I'm on my own. After that, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to obey. I don't have to respond. That's what theologians call antinomianism, an attitude against the law of God, an attitude against obedience. And so Paul says very, very plainly here, walk, that's a command, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. You've called, been called not just to salvation, but sanctification in Christ. And by the way, this term walk is a characteristic term that Paul uses often in his letters to talk about a step-by-step path towards spiritual maturity in the Christian life. He uses that several times here in Ephesians. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Here he says it in the negative. This is the way we once walked. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of of this world. You had a step-by-step relationship to the world. You were walking according to the dictates of the world. But notice verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Walk is peripateo. It's a step-by-step level of obedience in the Christian life as a pattern of life, as a characteristic of life. He talks about walking in chapter 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Why? Because he says in verse 20, this is not the way you learned Christ. Uh, Not to be darkened in your understanding, verse 18, alienated from the life of God because of ignorance, hardness of heart, being callous, verse 19, giving ourselves up to sensuality and greedy to practice every kind of impurity. No, this is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. No, this is the way you ought to walk. Opposite of that, you ought to, according to verses 25 and following, walk in a completely different way. He talks about walk in chapter 5, verse 2. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Verse 15, He talks about walking again. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. We are to walk systematically, step by step, in obedience 
to God's dictates because that's what we are called to do. This is the calling, the worthy calling with which we have all been called as Christians to walk the worthy walk. It's a beautiful metaphor. It's the idea of you and I taking deliberate incremental steps to obey Jesus Christ. And that's a wonderful thing because the Holy Spirit doesn't ask us to make leaps and bounds in our Christian life as though it's expected of us that we're at a spiritual plateau at one point and then the very next day we're expected to be at a completely different plateau in a major way. That's not what the Holy Spirit, that's not what Paul is telling us here. Incremental steps by God's grace through His Spirit to walk the worthy walk. Now what kind of walk specifically does this look like? Well, what I want to to do tonight is to give you six Christian virtues that are spoken here in verses 2 and 3. You might not think it so, but there are six of them, and Paul jams them together in just two verses to tell us how we're to walk the worthy walk. This is why this is so practical. Because Paul is telling us that there are very definite steps in this worthy walk. And those steps are outlined for us very, very practically. And as he moves into this very, very practical section, he wastes no time telling us what this worthy walk consists of. He tells us very clearly. And the first one is this, humility. Humility. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Then verse 2, with, and notice this, all humility. With all humility. Now, I don't know about you, but that smarts. That ouches. He could have just said, with some humility. Uh, Do your best. Uh, Try really hard. Instead, we are to walk the worthy walk, and what it looks like is all humility. All facets of humility in all facets of your life. It's a very, very interesting word. One... uh, Greek lexicon, a Greek dictionary that defines these words, says that in the New Testament, this word for humility is as a quality of voluntary submission and unselfishness. That's humility. It's self-effacement. It's opposite of arrogance, pride. And in a negative sense, it can be misdirected as submission and some of the cult practices of the day by self-abasement, self-flagellation, as though someone was really, really humble, uh, so they, they lashed at their own bodies. That's not what Paul is referring to here. Here he's simply saying that you ought not to think uh, too much about yourself because humility is really not trying to think much about yourself at all. That's what he's saying. Don't don't think highly of yourself. In fact, don't think much of yourself at all. Now, we are, all of us, going to be thinking some in some sense about ourselves. Philippians 2 says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests. And I think that translation is good because we do look out for our own per- personal interests. But it says, don't merely do so, but look out for the interests of others. And this is the chief virtue of the worthy walk, humility. It's at the top of the list. I mean, the very first opportunity that Paul has to tell us what 
the worthy walk looks like, the number one chief Christian virtue that he mentions here is humility. Humility. And he loves this idea. Look at Acts chapter 20 where Paul actually talks about himself. And you would think, well, if humility is not thinking about yourself much at all, then Paul, why are you doing this? Because he wants to show himself to them as a good example. He's not trying to draw attention to himself unnecessarily, but he says here in Acts chapter 20, and by the way, in Acts 20, this is what Paul is saying to the elders of the church at Ephesus. They're on the island of Miletus, and he's going to be seeing them presumably for the very last time. And here's what he says to them in Acts chapter 20. He says in verse 19, backing up, maybe a little bit to verse 18, and when they came to him, he said to them, this was his sort of last will and testament, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, and then here's verse 19, serving the Lord with what? All humility. Now we know that this must have been true, because if it weren't true, then the Holy Spirit would never have allowed Paul to write this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right? So he must have modeled that for them. And he says, this is the way I acted toward you, with all humility. And I mentioned to you a moment ago the idea of that Philippians 2 text. It's so very familiar, but it bears repeating. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Count others more significant than yourselves. That's how you could define humility. And notice again, he says here in chapter 4 of Ephesians, all humility, with all humility. Humility, my friends, brings unity. Because remember, he's talking to the church. He's talking to them collectively. Now it's true, it's supposed to be true of them individually, but he's talking collectively. And when he's talking collectively, he's saying, church, church at Ephesus, I want you to walk a worthy walk. I want you to pursue the calling with which you've been called. And what kind of calling is it? It's a call to sanctification. And what kind of worthy walk is it? It's a worthy walk that has as its chief component, its greater fruitfulness, the idea of humility, and not just humility, but all humility. And when you do that, when you are humble with each other, you will bring unity to the body. Humility brings unity. Pride destroys unity. Pride destroys unity. Pride puffs up. Humility builds up. The chief virtue of the Christian life then in this list of Paul's worthy walk, this step-by-step pursuit of holiness, is a humble, lowly position of seeking the good of everyone else. Now, if someone were to say, yeah, but what's in it for me? I mean, if I'm pursuing this humble, worthy walk, and I'm trying to, to reach out to others and to be humbly serving them, then what am I going to receive? And the answer to that is, 
if everybody else around you as you are serving them are also humble and are also endeavoring to serve others, they'll get to you and you'll be served. You'll be humbly served. Everyone will be looking around about how to humbly serve everyone else. And as I said to you, please notice that Paul says that the measure of these virtues lived out is full because he says with all humility. Notice the second virtue, gentleness. Gentleness. That's the next word in verse 2. Gentleness. Prautetas. Prautetas. Right on the heels of the chief virtue of humility, Paul speaks secondly of gentleness. And it could be defined this way. A quality of gentle friendliness. I like that. Gentle friendliness. A meekness. But a meekness that isn't a weakness. Notice the difference. It is a meekness. It's a gentleness. But it's not implying the idea of weakness. Someone once said, and I think that's a good definition, it's strength under control. Strength under control. It's a strength that accommodates itself to another's weakness. Another word you might use here is consideration. You consider others. According to Harold Honer, he's got one of the best commentaries on the book of Ephesians. The Greek word for gentleness has the idea of mildness. Mildness. The opposite of roughness. You and I have known people who are both in their exterior and at times in their temperament rough. They can come across as harsh. Uh, not just demanding, but harsh. They, they, they want to step on others to gain what they desire. There's not a gentleness there, certainly not a humility, but a gentleness is, is missing in them. And this, again, is one of Paul's words that he loves to communicate to Christian people that they ought to be exercising in their life. And notice, with all humility and gentleness. So it's all humility and all gentleness. Look in your Bibles at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. And I do trust that at times when I give you these cross-references that you will write them down. I know sometimes I can go quickly, but if you'll write some of these down and look at them later, you'll be able, I think, through the weight, the sheer weight of what Scripture says with some of these cross-references, that you'll understand in a good way the pressure that we're all under to see the weight of the obligation of these passages, especially these cross-references. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says in verse 1, I, Paul, myself entreat you, And that's somewhat similar to what he says here in chapter 4, verse 1. I urge you. I appeal to you. Here's this phrase. I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. That's a lovely phrase, isn't it? The meekness and gentleness of Christ. He wants them to do something. And he wants to be perceived by them in a humble way. And he starts out in chapter 10, verse 1, and says, I myself, Paul, I want to entreat you with the very meekness and gentleness of Christ. He's giving Christ as the example 
of meekness and gentleness. We know, of course, that that's precisely what Jesus said about himself in Matthew 11:29. He says, For I am gentle and humble or lowly in heart. What a, what a beautiful set of attributes that we ought to have as Christians because we're following the Lord Jesus. He's meek. He's gentle. And by the way, if you're meek, if you're gentle, to say nothing of humility... It doesn't preclude the idea of you having a very definite and zealous desire to pursue God and also to catch up short those who say they're pursuing God when they're not. You have Jesus in Matthew 11:29 saying, I am meek and lowly of heart, but you've also got that same Jesus who is making a whip to drive out the money changers from the temple. And those two things are, of course, not contradictory with each other. They blend beautifully together in a man who has a zealousness for God, the Lord Jesus, and yet, even in the process of forming that whip with premeditation and then cleaning out the temple and, and, and in a sense, yelling angrily with, with righteousness to these money changers, why stop this? Why are you making my father's house, instead of a house of prayer, a house of merchandise? And yet, never sinned, never was disobedient, and was meek and gentle even in the act of doing what he was doing. This is the gentleness of Christ. And Paul says, this is a major Christian virtue for all of us to pursue. Look at Galatians chapter 5. You know, of course, that because Galatians chapter 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit, this is one of those. Verse 23, the first word listed there in our English text, gentleness, gentleness. And how will the Galatians be called upon to be gentle? Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, uh, paraptima, someone is... uh, caught unawares they they, uh, they fall into a trap it's like a a, a bird uh, who who falls into a trap you who are spiritual you virtuous people you christians it's a a synonym for christianity you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of what gentleness gentleness it's a major virtue of the christian life titus Chapter 3, verse 2. Titus 3, 2. Here's what we're called upon to do, even with those outsiders, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. What a challenge! What a challenge, especially with those outside the faith. We know that he's speaking at least of them because he says in verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Yes, that's the way we used to live as well. 
But what we're called upon to do now as Christians is to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. I often think, as I will see either Facebook posts or news reports or emails or television shows, uh, commentaries, that Christians should exhibit a great deal more gentleness than we do even with some of those hot-button topics of the day. Now, someone who uh, begins to uh, act like a woman who's a man, and then uh, the Internet is flooded, even with Christian people who are blasting such a one. And yes, there are times when we need to talk very seriously but sensitively about what sin is and about what sin does. But I fear that those people who make jokes about such a one, those people who speak angrily about such a thing, are often probably themselves not manifesting the idea of gentleness. And this is what Paul calls upon us to do. James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Verse 21. He says to us there, Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness, gentleness, the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And then he says later in chapter 3, verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness or gentleness of wisdom. First Peter chapter 3, verse 4, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And what does God think of a gentle and quiet spirit? In God's sight, this is very precious. Very precious. He says later in verse 15, But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. This is a major Christian virtue. Honer gets it absolutely right when he says, this term is used for the taming and training of animals. For instance, Controlled by the master's will, a well-trained dog is always angry at the master's foes and never angry at the master's friends. Isn't that good? Only the person who is controlled by the Spirit of God can truly be gentle. Angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. When such a person is wronged, he or she does not seek revenge... But when a wrong has been committed toward a brother or sister or the body of believers, he or she has the power to address the situation. We have the power. It's that meekness under control. He goes on to say, in Ephesus, where there was the probability of great differences between believing Jews and Gentiles, believers needed to have both humility and gentleness. You remember when I told you that there was according to chapter 2, great hostility. There was a dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. They They didn't interact with one another. They hated one another. They didn't speak to one another. And now 
Christ, by His peace, is bringing Jews and Gentiles in the body of Christ, they had massive differences between each other, even as Christians. Massive differences of opinion, especially on gray areas. Massive differences on the way one ought to worship, the way one ought to conduct him or herself in the Christian life. And Paul says, one of the great ways, one of the virtues that will keep the body together is all humility and all gentleness. Thirdly, thirdly, patience. Patience. Oh, this is so necessary in the body. So necessary. It can be defined as a state of emotional quietness in the face of unfavorable circumstances. I like that. Emotional quietness in the face of unfavorable circumstances. You might have used the synonym, and it's a good one, long-suffering. Long-suffering. Endurance. Maybe even forbearance. This particular word, patience, is macrothumia. Often, when you see words that are combined from two different Greek words, the context is going to tell you how to define it. But here... The compound of these two words, the combining of the two of them, really give you the sense of the word, both in the context and in the etymology of the word itself, the definition of the word. Macro means a long time, and thumos means anger. A long time until anger comes. Long suffering. A short fuse. Slow to anger. That's the way to define this. And again, Paul says it's a fruit of the Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. Patience. It's an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. He told the Colossians in Colossians chapter 1, verse 11, May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Patience with joy, long-suffering with joy, endurance and patience with joy. He says in chapter 3, verse 12, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Second Timothy, chapter 3. He says in verse 10, Second Timothy 3.10, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience. And in that context, verse 11, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, and which persecutions I endured. It's often used in that context, by the way. It's long-suffering, it's endurance, it's patience, even in the midst of afflictions, and persecutions. And that's what he says. Chapter 4, verse 2. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience. But we have to be patient with people. It's not easy. But it is, by the way, characteristic of God Himself. God Himself is said to be long-suffering. In Exodus 34, 6, that famous phrase mentioned several other times in the Old Testament, God is slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. You know, in Romans 2, 4, 
It talks about God's patience awaiting those who, according to His kindness, will repent. God is long-suffering. Romans 9, verse 22. God is patient even with the wicked. I mean, you would assume that God's patience would wear thin with all of the evil and the wickedness of this world. But God is so long-suffering with such a long-standing patience. And He expects us as fellow Christians in the church of God to exhibit what He Himself is characterized by. Patience. And beloved, when there are those in the fellowship who are testing your patience, giving you the occasion due to their lack of maturity to respond with a short fuse, wait. Wait. Be patient. Let God work on them. You know why? Because God is working on you. He's working on us. We want the ultimate patience with others when we are unloving, uncaring, unkind. And we should expect ourselves to be very patient with them when they are unloving and unkind. It's a long-suffering. That's what the Lord does. That's how He's characterized. And that's how we ought to be characterized. Humility, all humility, gentleness, all gentleness, with patience, and fourthly, tolerance. Tolerance. Anexo. This word's defined as exercising self-restraint and tolerance. Here's another word, endure. And here's the one I like most of all, to put up with. To put up with. That's how this word can be defined. To put up with, to bear with, to tolerate somebody. You know it's used, this particular word, in the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, about God Himself being restrained by withholding rain? Amos chapter 4, verse 7, Haggai 1.10, and restraining Himself from destroying people. Putting up with. Bearing with people. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.12, when persecuted, we endure. We endure. We bear up underneath it. Colossians 3.13, that twin epistle, says, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. This may be, in my estimation, one of the most challenging in this list of six Christian virtues. To be tolerant of one another. To endure one another. To put up with one another. To be patient with one another. I mean, differences, they're going to be there in the church. They're going to be there in spades. They're, they're all over the place. They're multiplied. One Greek grammarian, A.T. Robertson, very, very famous brother of yesteryear, says this word means holding yourselves back from one another. I mean, do you, do you see the picture? I just want to get at the guy. I just want to tell her a thing or two. And he says, no, this word is holding yourself back from one another. Reserving judgment. Being patient. Being loving. 
being kind. And if you do that, if you put up with one another, you're doing exactly what God does when He restrains the rain or when He restrains from destroying somebody on the spot. We're to treat Christian brothers and sisters with humility and gentleness and patience and tolerance. I think that's a good word to use here. Not just because it's a one-word virtue, but tolerating people means that I don't necessarily agree with how they do things. I don't necessarily agree with their perspective on something. I don't necessarily agree with uh, some of their actions. And we're talking, of course, about areas that are not necessarily overtly sinful. But when I see how they do things, and I know I would do it differently if I were doing it, I still must be tolerant of them and allow God to work through those things. Because maybe in the final analysis, my opinion is the one that's wrong. Leon Morris says, Paul is realistic. Christians are not always easy to get on with. And fellow Christians sometimes have irritating faults. So the temptation comes to be short with one another. But this, Paul says, is not the Christian way. We're tolerant. I mean, we're we're humble, we're gentle, we're patient, we're tolerant. And fifthly, love. Love. Notice what he says there in Ephesians chapter 4. Here's the worthy walk. It's a manner that Paul says should be worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility, that's one, with all gentleness, that's two, with patience, that's three, and these all have imperatival force. They are commands, bearing with or putting up with one another. And he says there at the, at the back end of verse 2, in love. Putting up with one another in love. Agape, that famous word. It means the love of choice. The love of choice. It's not a fickle love. It's the choice to love. I choose to love someone. It's, it, it especially has this word agape, an attitude of appreciation resulting from a conscious evaluation and choice. And it's used both of God's choice to love us and our choice to love others. It's a, it's a devotion. It's a loving devotion. Clinton Arnold says, Paul here urges his readers to have an attitude of love, in love, in agape, in love, in tolerating the faults and the sometimes grating personality quirks of others in the church. I mean, he just says it. Yes, people are going to have irritating, grating faults in the church. He calls it personality quirks. Yes, of course. He says, Ernest Best explains it well when he says, no one ever finds it easy to see and allow for the point of view and the actions of others. Within the community, Christians do not escape this, but have regularly to deal with what they regard as the faults of their fellow Christians. And for this, love is essential. Love is essential. Yes, it is. Humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance, love. And by the way, I don't know if you realize this, but outside of 
the book of 1 Corinthians, which of course has the so-called love chapter of chapter 13 in which love is extolled. Apart from that particular Pauline book, the noun form for the word love and the verb form for the word love is mentioned more in the book of Ephesians than any other Pauline epistle. That's a major theme in this book. Love. Love. This is what God has called us to do and to be. They will know you are Christians by your what? By your love. By your love. A major, major Christian virtue. And lastly, peace. Peace. Verse 3 eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Peace is the word irene. Irene. And it means the absence of conflict. The absence of conflict. The opposite of division. Of dissension. It's characterized especially in the heart of someone, the heart of a Christian, as Inner rest, harmony, peace, freedom from anxiety. Oh, how Christians ought to learn more regularly how to be at peace with themselves and with one another. To have no agendas, no bitternesses, no anger, no malice, no slander in their heart. And notice that Paul doesn't tell us to bring about peace. Notice it, verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. By the way, that word bond, bond of peace, is a similar word. It's a cognate form of what Paul says, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. I'm bound in these chains. And as opposite as being bound in chains, Paul says, you're in the bond of peace. Why? Because the Holy Spirit brought it to you. Didn't he say in chapter 2, verse 13, Now in Christ Jesus you were once far off, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, the hostility between Jews and Gentiles. And he abolished that, and he made in the place of those two warring factions, one, one new man in the place of two, so making peace, he's killed the hostility, he preached peace, he brought peace, and now we're fellow citizens. We are in the bond of peace. And God's brought us there. You say, well, I'm not sure about the Jew and Gentile because I don't really relate to that. Well, how about black and white, rich and poor, he and her? Anything else? Financially successful, financially poor. Nice clothes, not so nice clothes. doesn't matter. Whatever categories you're talking about, God has brought us together in the body of Christ and he's brought us to a place of maintaining, fighting for, eagerly seeking, being diligent to spare no effort to maintain the unity that's ours in the bond of peace. I mean, these are, these are incredible Christian virtues that I've only spent, what, maybe five or six minutes talking about each one of them? 
I mean, they, they deserve, by the very nature of what they are, loads of more time and effort and opportunity and contemplation and meditation about what they are and what they look like and how we're to respond to others with these virtues. But at least enough, you have gentleness, you have humility, gentleness, patience, you have tolerance, love, peace. And what you have really at the end of the book of Ephesians is possibly even a summary of it all. Ephesians 6.23, peace, be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. I ask you tonight as we close, how diligent are you in cultivating these six Christian virtues for the sake of sweet unity in the body? I mean, we have, to, we have to maintain it. We have to work hard. We have to be diligent. Spare no effort. Make sure you're constantly doing everything that you can to maintain the unity of the Spirit. This whole section in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and I would argue probably even throughout the rest of the epistle itself, is about the unity of the body. It's about the unity of the church. And the only way we're going to get there in a sweet, peaceable reasonableness is to have humility and gentleness and patience and tolerance and love and peace to the glory of God and for the sake of His name. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, it is right and good and best even when we only spend five or ten minutes or so on these Christian virtues, to spend so much more time on them. But at least, Lord, we thank You for tonight how You've given us these virtues to live, to pattern the worthy walk, to which we've been called, this step-by-step walk of obedience. Lord, it seems at times so unattainable. As soon as we think we might have a, a measure of a handle on humility, it seems like it's gone so fleetingly. As soon as we ponder how to be gentle, patient, tolerant of one another it seems so fleetingly gone there's an eruption there's a challenge there's an argument and it all comes out of the cesspool of our remaining sin it comes even at times when we're not sinning from those who sin against us and at times we even sin by our reaction to their sin against us and sometimes we don't and when we don't we major on these Christian virtues and you grow us in Christ. We want to develop humility and gentleness and patience and tolerance and love and peace. We want to maintain that. We want to grow in that. We want to believe you for major spiritual growth in the process of the Christian life. Would you bring that to us, Holy Spirit? 
And would you do that not just to us as individuals, but to us collectively in the fellowship? Our unity is so fragile, Father. And yet you've given it to us. The Holy Spirit has has brought peace out of chaos. He's brought tranquility out of war. And we are to be so eager, Paul says, to maintain it, to fight for it, to pursue it. It's there. It's there already. We're not supposed to make it up. We're not supposed to create it. It's there. We are to maintain it. And we do so by living out these Christian virtues. May it be so, Lord, so that we can show this watching world that we do truly love each other. May we continue to pursue these things vigorously, not only as individuals, but as Thousand Oaks Bible Church. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.